0: Well, welcome to our listeners. This is Reflections from Budapest Religion, State and Society, where we look at issues of religious conflict, religious violence and reconciliation. We have previously concentrated on our research about anti Semitism in Hungary. We have recently completed this research and published a two volume set of books on the subject titled Anti Semitism in Hungary Appearance and Reality. In our current research, titled The Text on Christian Communities and Institutions, we are undertaking fieldwork in a number of countries in the EU, Middle East and Africa. Our research in Poland was completed and we traveled to Iraqi Kurdistan at the end of March. We next plan to do a research in Jordan, Jerusalem and the West Bank. This podcast is part of our new series focused on the Middle East. Today, on the 23rd of November 2023, we have the pleasure of speaking with Ali Pieps, the director of International Relations of the Israel Defense and Security Forum. Mr. Pieps is a graduate of Yeshiva University. Previously, he served as a Director of International Relations at the Yesha Council, a lobbyist in the field of economic policy and taxation, and as a director of political campaigns in various countries in the United States and around the world. My name is Sharon Sugar, I'm a researcher at the Danube Institute. Let me introduce my colleagues, Professor Jeffrey Kaplan, a distinguished fellow at the Danube Institute, and Gabriela Kocsis, an intern at the Danube Institute. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Bips.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So my first question would be that could you share a little bit about your professional background interest and your current work?
1: Well, thank you so much, Sharon. Yeah, I would say um, my professional background... um, really is is at the nexus of faith and politics. Um, I really enjoy um, the faith. I'm a Jewish. Uh, my Jewish faith is the, is a center part of my life. Um, everything, I pray three times a day. Um, it's, uh, it's something that I always think about and focus. Um, in fact, 13 years ago, I moved my family from the United States where I was born uh, and moved to Israel largely to become a more complete Jew. Um, you can be Jewish outside of Israel, but, uh, Israel is the country is our natural habitat. And that's where Jews are naturally from. So, uh, everything is just a little bit smoother, simpler, and easier. Um, professionally, when I was in the States, um, I did work by, primarily in politics. Um, again, like at the faith level, but really focus on fiscal policy, but understanding that even fiscal policy, which seems very much removed from faith, that there are faith elements to it. Um, big part of it, even in fact, and the U S currency and the American currency, it says in God, we trust, um, understanding that if you do not have a faithful, uh, um, foundation, um, even currency and the economy is going to fall apart. And you look around the world and you do see that unfortunately, uh, in many places. Um, but then when I moved to Israel, um, it became natural to try to, um, incorporate my, 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 appreciation, my love for politics. Um, with trying to explain Israel to much of the international community, primarily in the area of international relations and national security. Um, you know, I've also obviously, my other interests are, are probably our sports, um, which I very much appreciate and I always enjoy, and it's a nice escape, but also it's kind of like reality. Like I, I don't like fantasy. I don't like things that are not real. And even though sports is not uh, important, it actually is real. Um, but it's a nice escape.
0: Thank you. Um, so, as Sarah mentioned in the introduction, you you currently work in the Israeli Defense and Security Forum, and I wanted to ask about the IDSF and what is it? Its main mission as an institute, and uh, what are the main areas of your activity?
1: Thank you so much. So, the the, the Israel's Defense and Security Forum, um, which in Hebrew is called Habit Chonistim, which means the security guys. That's kind of a slang term, um, and basically, it was founded by a, uh, an IDF general, Israeli Defense Forces General, who when he retired from um, being in active duty, um, 30 years of active duty. He saw that there was space in the Israeli um, uh, society um, to for an organization to be advancing national security perspectives, policies, ideas. You know, Israel has not had a day of peace um, in its 75 years of existence. Um, Unfortunately, we're living through a time of particular unsettlement, but the truth is we've never had peace. In fact, we've made peace with a couple of our uh, neighboring countries, um, and it's a relatively cold peace. Um, So you would think that the priority of national security would be prominent and dominant in the culture in Israel. And it is to a certain extent, but we also have something else we found out on October 7th, a tendency to want to put our head in the sand and believe everything is better than it really is. Um, we live with an amazing amount of threats on our doorstep and we've gotten accustomed to it for a very long time. And what IDSF was set up to do was A, to build up the Israeli culture of patriotism, which in Israel would call Zionism, very healthy patriotism, um, which is Judaism and Zionism um, so that our young generation that's going to be coming our uh, future officers in the IDF know what they're fighting for, know what they're defending, know what their country is all about. Um, And then once once we go beyond that, um, we try to make sure that the decision leaders, decision makers and influencers in Israel um, understand the consequence of strong strategic national security policy. The area I work on is pushing that to the international community, making sure the international community has an understanding of uh, both the policies that Israel is advancing or Israel should be advancing that will enhance its own and national security, help people to understand that Israel's national security, frankly, is an element of the national security of the West um, and, a much, and much of the free world. And when Israel is unsafe and when Israel is threatened um, Israel's vulnerabilities end up being vulnerabilities for the entire world. And again, I think that's something that we're seeing right now.
0: Can you walk our listeners through what actually happened to Israeli civilians on October 7th, which is also called a black Saturday?
1: Yeah. Um, October 7th is, uh, is, is a day that, uh, you know, in, in a day that will remain in infamy, um, in, in Israel, um, it's a day that began. Um, as the end of about a month of holidays, it was, uh, it wasn't just on, on Shabbat and the Jewish Sabbath, but it was also at the end of a holiday season where we celebrate pretty much the end of this season. And it's called Simchat Torah, the happiness rejoicing with the Torah. Um, so it was a particularly joyous day, um, a day that will be forever, um, marred, um, with the with a horrific a brutality. Of what we experienced on October seventh, which was something that Israel has never really experienced, um, the level of attacks on um, civilians um, was outrageous. Um, we've had individual attacks, but nothing as coordinated. Um, and uh, we had over twelve hundred Israeli civilians um, were killed. Were some some um, some IDF uh, as well were killed, um, but we had uh, it wasn't just how they were killed. I'm sorry, it it wasn't just that they were killed, it was how they were killed. It was brutal. Um, There was a lot of sexual violence against women, um, rapes, um, um, mutilations. Um, And then not just that, there were many examples of people torturing parents, tying up children, killing and, and dismembering children in front of the parents and then killing them. some cases, actually popping out eyes of parents as they're also dismembering their children. Horrific, horrific situations, putting babies into ovens. Um, uh, the, the, unfortunately, the list goes on, um, and uh, this barbarity, um, we could not have really anticipated that it really existed just a few kilometers away. Um, Israel had always had lived for about 18 years um, with an enemy state in the Gaza Strip. Uh, so, from 2005, um, Israel had been, and there have been many Israelis who had been living in the area called the Gaza Strip. In 2005, the Israeli government made a decision to evacuate all the Israeli civilians from that area, and it wasn't just our civilians. We even exhumed all the dead bodies of Jews from the area. So we really left absolutely no trace other than we left functioning factories. We even built, uh, specifically for the Palestinians, greenhouses and hothouses so that there would be opportunities so that what we were leaving behind could become a Singapore, uh, could become an area of financial opportunity. And they should see Israel leaving, not, not that we don't care about them, but we should see Israel leaving and that we can give them their opportunity to create their own future, a future of hope and opportunity. Uh, unfortunately, they very quickly changed that around and it became a future, uh, not just of misery, but of incitement and, and of brutality that we never really quite imagined till we saw it in our in our living rooms on October 7th. Um, it's a, uh, what we experience is something that we will probably not recover for a very long time. And I think every Israeli, every Jew, and I think many people in the civilized world will be impacted by it um, for a very, very long time.
0: Was this brutality you uh, explained inspired by ISIS or does it have deeper roots in your view? <sighs>
1: So, I would say certainly they mimicked a lot of ISIS activities in the manner that uh, you know they, they filmed everything on GoPro. Uh, they uploaded their activities not just on their social media live stream, but they literally took the phones of their victims and uplo- uploaded their massacre of the victims on their own Facebook pages. So many Israelis found out about how their loved ones, how their grandparents were murdered by tuning into their own Facebook page. Um, but the ISIS element was also because they wanted to inspire copycats. They wanted to inspire and to engage, um, you know, there's a lot of jihadis that are out of work. now that, uh, the, the U S left Afghanistan a couple of years ago, um, there are jihadis who are unfortunately looking for this kind of extremism. Um, and they felt they wanted to say, and, and their message was Israel was attacking the Third holiest sites in Islam, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which they've been making up for a long time, but they say Israelis are storming the Al-Aqsa Mosque. We're defending the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, and by saying it that, it it ceases to become a regional conflict between Israel and a Palestinian entity, but it, instead it becomes a world. I mean, a, a, a religious war between Jews and Muslims, and trying to recruit Muslims from around the world, those with the jihadi mentality. To come to Israel and to wage war against against the Jews, against the Israelis. Um, unfortunately, um, that element is very dangerous, um, and is something that uh, that we're fighting fighting against. But I would say your question about does it have deeper roots? I think here the deep roots is that there is a, a huge amount of anti-Semitism. Um, there is a sense. There is an element of Islam which is really the uh, epitome of toxic masculinity um and what i would say by that is the uh, for them the presence of israel of a jewish state in what they see as arab muslim land is something that is a thorn that they cannot get rid of and it is too upsetting and they, they need to get rid of it it's an itch they are we're going to continue to scratch um it, until until either we break their finger or they break us um and unfortunately that's where we're at and uh we're going to be fighting this war. Um, uh, this war will end when either Hamas is destroyed or we're destroyed. It's one or the other.
2: Just to follow up on that, is that something that is restricted, do you think, to the Palestinians? Or is it really inherent in Islam and in the
1: Islamic world? So I don't know if uh, it's a good question. Um, I would say certainly we have examples of many Muslims who are not only supportive of Israel, who want to have good relations. Um, with Israel, with many Jews. Um, obviously, we see one one of the impetus for October 7th by Hamas, really by Iran, was the growing um, momentum of the Abram Accords, the the normalization between Israel and, um, and Sunni countries in the Gulf. Um, and it would seem like that uh, Saudi Arabia is moving more and more along those lines. Um, and the reality is, I think that uh, if I'm Opposing the Abram Accords, I am extremely threatened by the Abram Accords. and I think uh, you know, I think they understand what their enemy is, uh, as much as they are angered at Israel, at our existence. They're even more angered at other Muslims who are finally after 75 years, accepting that Israel is here permanently, and the more that Israel engages with Bahrain, the UAE, uh, Morocco not quite in the Middle East, um, and uh, and Saudi Arabia and other countries, um, the more difficult it is going to be to dislodge Israel, um, and I think that was an attack. Uh, they will very much want the images that are appearing right now on the on TV screens around the world on Al Jazeera, of um, of Palestinian um, civilians or claiming that they're dead, who are being who are killed, and uh, you know, very very hard images for any any caring person to see. But these were designed; these are planned for. Um, And the goal is to make it difficult for Saudi Arabia and other like-minded countries to come closer to Israel. And while the Arab streets might be outraged, um, the understanding um, from many of these leaders, uh, the leader of Bahrain has been uh, relatively strong in his condemnation of Hamas um, and the general support of Israel. Um, Saudi Arabia has made similar statements as well. Where they understand the reason why those countries were coming close to israel is because they know it's in their best interest to have a relation with israel and what hamas does is not going to stop that it might delay it for a little bit and it might uh, force some of the activities to remain a little bit more under the hood um because publicly right now that may not uh, sell so well um in in some, uh, some of these countries but as it starts coming out how these hamas militants um and terrorists um and just brutal people as they as it comes out how they treated Muslims um, how they treated Israeli Arabs um, I think that will start becoming more and more of a recognition that this is this is a, a the jihadi threat is as a threat to Jews but it's also a threat to more moderate strains within Islam
2: I think that's a great geopolitical analysis and explanation. But does it explain the form that the violence took, which is almost unknown in the pre in the previous conflict with Israel, and hasn't really been seen since the Karajites, which is in the early Middle Ages? It's something that is that that is beyond the norm of a geopolitical conflict.
1: One hundred percent. No, you're absolutely right. This this goes beyond. I, th- I know there's been a lot of talk that these were you know, these were like animals. Animals don't kill that way. Um, these were people who who took a certain amount of pleasure, um, in what they were doing. Um, they felt that they were inspired by God to, 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 humiliate, to degrade, to torture their victims. Um, they also felt that that is something that shows that their God is superior to ours, that it would inspire more people to join their jihad. Um, and I would say this was, was, was really was a recruiting tool. Um, that's what the GoPros, um, that's what the social media, the telegram channels that were designed by Hamas to reach out to disaffected um, Muslims or jihadis from around the world, um, that this was a way to try to get them to join this jihad. And this jihad is not just fighting in, uh, you know, in various hilltops throughout either the Middle East or in South Asia. This is for the Holy Land. This is for all the marbles, Um, and the hope was that they were going to be getting a lot of people to join. Um, I I don't know if we've seen that, but uh, I think that there are definitely uh, populations of jihadis that are coming not really from the south uh, of Israel by Hamas, but really the north. Um, There is another front that Israel has on the northern border, that is Hezbollah, uh, facing off with Israel in, in Lebanon. Um, and there we do have reports of uh, jihadis uh, coming in through Syria, um, the very porous borders in that part of the world. Um, and they would be potentially joining in. All of this South is coordinated by Iran. Israel has not just suffered um, or been attacked by Hamas, an Iranian proxy from the South, and by Hezbollah, an Iranian proxy in the North, but also another Iranian proxy called the Houthis, who are down in Yemen, which is <laughs> very far away, um, but they have decided to get involved as well. This is all coordinated by Iran, and uh, it's uh, be, it's has the potential of really becoming a, a a a real I don't know world war, but a certainly much more a, a much bigger regional war than Israel against a terrorist group.
2: No, I would agree. I was in Morocco last week at an international Islamic conference. And the when the private discussion was never talked about publicly, but when the private discussion was about what, the kind of violence that was done there, there was an air of denial that they couldn't believe Muslims could do such a thing. And so it must be some kind of propaganda. And I think you're starting to see it spin that way into the Western world as well.
1: Yeah, fascinating. Um, th- that's that's terribly upsetting uh, because one of the things that Israel has been trying to do, um, you know, f- we left the communities largely intact. In fact, today, just today, so we are now about fifty days out. I don't have the exact date, but it's about almost fifty days out from the attack on October seventh. Um, starting some of the towns, we are starting to fix them. Uh, we, we we had left them largely to the extent that they were destroyed so that people could see the brutality. Um, and uh, well, we actually came across a body that was killed on October 7th um, that was in such bad shape that we didn't even find it until today when we are just moving some of the uh, broken down buildings um, that had been destroyed. Um, the, the truth is, there there is a credit to the humanity that can't believe that some of these atrocities were done. Um, and... I guess if there's an upside or there's a a silver lining, that would be it. Uh, But on the other hand, when you are a refusal to recognize and to diagnose evil is misplaced compassion. Um, And I think that the Israeli government did a very good job in facilitating many heads of state, many prime ministers um, and foreign ministers to visit Israel in the media days afterwards and making sure they got to see everything for themselves. And I think that's part of the reason why Israel has still benefited from a significant amount of sympathy, um, in much of the world where frankly, in Europe, Israel hasn't always received a tremendous amount of support or sympathy, um, where we see in many countries, um, certainly in Western Europe, we've seen a tremendous amount of, um, rallies, uh, and not even like, you can't say these are pro Palestinian. These are just pro Hamas. Oh, Hamas rallies, it's either pro-Hamas or anti-Semitic. Well, you can you can uh, d- divide that up, but these were rallies that took place literally on October 8th before Israel even had the chance to respond. Uh, you had hundreds of thousands of people um, rallying uh, and really in just um, anti-Semitic vitriol. I mean, I don't know how else to describe. We saw unfolding in city after city and university campus after university campus. Um, in places where you would think the civilized world um, would not tolerate this kind of activity. And again, I think part of it is you cannot believe the brutality, again, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, But once the brutality is there, um, people don't have the humility to say, wow, I was supporting the wrong side. Um, There are good people who could, without having looked into or investigated the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, as closely as, as I have, um there are honest people who could look at the conflict and say you know what I'm, I'm 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 partial and I'm very sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians um I as an israeli am very partial to the plight of many palestinians um, however um sometimes it takes a certain humility to to recognize that you've been supporting people um much more aggressively than just being certain, certainly feeling a certain empathy for the plight of some people when their leaders act in the way that they did and they're not hiding it. Um, the leaders of Hamas have said they want to do it on October 7th again and again, and again, um, they've not shied away. Um, at a certain point there is culpability. And, uh, I think that, uh, the West, um, and so certainly many in the civilized world, um, do, will need to take a look in the mirror, um, and understand what side are you on? Are you on the side of good in the world or on the side of evil? Um, and unfortunately, this is not merely just a war between Israel and, and even Iran. It's a war between the civilized world and the non-civilized world. Um, and unfortunately, it is just that stark. Um, and, and I do feel like that a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, political leaders, uh, prime ministers of countries, like I said, who are not always terribly sympathetic to Israel, have been supporting Israel to a large extent, to a large extent, even though. Many of their or significant amounts of their constituents seem to have this strong, not just anti-Israel, but really anti-Semitic element, which is must be very scary for them.
2: One last follow-up. We're taking too long on this, but it's a, it's an important topic. Has Israel really done a good job of showing what happened on October 7th? And what I'm thinking of is the recent publicity from Israeli women's groups about Israel's failure to emphasize the sexual violence that took place, that in the narrative that the government was showing, that element was left out. And it was left to private women's groups to try to make the point that there was a lot of this, not a little. And it was it was very, very brutal.
1: So that's a great question. I'll say there's a couple of things. Um... First of all, typically, and again, I'm not an expert in this field, but my understanding is that within 48 hours after um, sexual violence, a lot of the evidence is not quite there anymore, um, or 72 hours, something like that. Uh, unfortunately, so many of the uh, of the attacks, people were were, I mean, burnt um, in in pyres. Um, there, there certainly were many cases that we have proof of but there were a tremendous amount of cases where it seemed like there there isn't proof. Um, The sense was that, and I think this is something that uh, Israel relied, if Israel is saying everything, um, then at a certain point, as you were saying, some of your uh, colleagues that you met in Morocco and others will say, well, this is just Israeli propaganda. You would have expected just a couple of years out after the Me Too uh, worldwide trauma that it wouldn't have taken, it wouldn't have required the Israeli government to parade victims of sexual torture um around say hey look what happened israel has been very sensitive to the mental state of the victims of the victims families to see um their children and in some cases grandmothers paraded around um so a lot, most of the videos um have not been showed widely they've been showed um only uh in limited forms they've been showed with blurred faces um Clearly, there, have been, there has been enough that's out there that anybody who wants to see can see. And unfortunately, it is shocking that UN agencies um, that are, seem to be committed to this issue have this huge blind spot when it comes to Israeli suffering and when the Isra- Israelis are the victims. Um, I think that is probably one of the biggest things that Israelis are coming to terms with, is that regardless of how much we are showing... You know, there was a book that came out a year ago. I'm forgetting who wrote it. It was called "The World Loves Dead Jews," uh, because people are very comfortable after Jews are massacred, putting up memorials. We feel bad and never again talking about it. But it is doing anything to stop it. That's 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 not always as comfortable. And you no, know, so there'll be dead Jews, and we'll put up another memorial. Um, and I think Israelis kind of are thought that after World War II. We didn't have we wouldn't have to go through that again but apparently right now particularly with this issue of women's violence um you know I think that we might you know it, it seems like in the coming days we may get some of the women and children um, who had been being held hostage for almost two months um hopefully will be released in the coming days um, again not saying that it was necessarily a great um diplomatic achievement uh I think there are some some very big checks Challenges about the hostage deal, but if we end up getting uh, about fifty or so hostages um, released, they're all supposed to be women and children. Unfortunately, I think we will get some uh, firsthand uh, experiences, and analysis, and descriptions what happened to them. And my hope is that people will have a, a, a will have a less difficult time um, ignoring that. But uh, I will find it very easy to believe that many people will refuse to believe even the words of victims because they are Israelis.
2: Let's move to the intelligence level. Um, The attack on October 7th may represent the greatest intelligence failure in Israeli history. There seems to have been a number of warnings, including from IDF spotters on the Gaza border, whose warnings were ignored completely. From your perspective, what really happened on an intelligence level on October 7th, and could it have been prevented?
1: You know, that's uh, I think that is obviously the top there's no doubt that that was the the biggest intelligence failure that Israel has ever faced. Um, And we are still, as we're prosecuting the war, we're not going to find out everything. We're going to, there's going to be a full um, uh, uh, investigation as to what happened and uh, hopefully we will get to the bottom of it, but I presume much of it will still have to be, um, uh, you know, um, kept under wraps because uh, it will it potentially could probably lead to other um, uh, intelligence uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, but there's no doubt that there were um, vul- um, th- there was a huge failure. Um, I think part of it was the lack of the imagination. You know, uh, at IDSF uh, Israel Defense Security Forum, um, our founder, his name is uh, General Amir Avivi, um, and one of the things that kind of went viral was in May of 2022. He testified before the Israeli Knesset, the Israeli parliament, and basically said, guys, you need to wake up. We are on the precipice of a major war, the only question in the next two to three years. but He was made, made a few months off. But he said, uh, the, the, the only question that remains is, uh, this is Israeli nomenclature, is it going to be a six-day war or is it going to be a Yom Kippur war? What does that mean? I mean, is it going to be a war that we are going to set the time, the, the time frame? We're going to preemptively attack, which we did in the Six-Day War, after um, our enemies had already essentially declared war on us, had closed, had had done everything, but literally waited for us to shoot first, so we're not going to wait. Or Yom Kippur War, where we also there was a sense that there was going to be an attack, but we waited for our enemy to attack us first, and uh, the consequences uh, were quite severe. Um, and that's basically what happened. And so we ended up getting the Yom Kippur war, uh, we ended up, uh, having this war happening when we were not ready for it. We didn't really imagine it could have happened. We were to a certain extent lulled to sleep, um, by Ham- Hamas. We wanted to believe that all Hamas really cared about was certain financial benefits that Israel should allow more Gazans to work in Israel to get more permits. Um, and we thought that what's what they had wanted. Um. Again, I would have say that's what all of the military felt, but certainly a lot of the political class, um, with strong encouragement from the international community. You know, this was not the first time that Hamas had attacked Israel since Israel left in two thousand five. We've had, I think, it was seven rounds, uh, where every single time, as we get more and more times when Hamas would attack Israel, um, either over land, eventually built a fence, and then. They shoot missiles at us, and then we built an iron dome, and then they built tunnels underneath us. The ideology kept getting stronger and stronger. Their will to destroy us kept getting there. But every time Israel wanted to fully um, respond, um, Israel's weakness was that it would listen to pressure from the international community, um, which was playing right into the handbook of Hamas, which is create as many civilian casualties as possible, so that the Western passionate world will feel compassion for them, will employ Israel or, or, or put pressure on Israel to end Israel's activities, um, and then they'll lift a fight another day. And every time af- after that, they would always would declare victory, and they would make themselves stronger, learn from how Israel attacked, and be a little bit smarter, and each time being able to create damage for us. Um, and we were all to sleep even literally in the days before Israel was attacked on October 7th, we had these series of what seemed like harmless, um, we had these mostly teenagers or maybe early twenties who would go to the barrier, the wall between Israel and, uh, and Gaza. Um, they would fly flags, they would shoot firecrackers or somewhat projectiles at us. Um, Israel would respond at our border um, the international community would say, well how come you'd be shooting at these people they're not doing anything Well the reality was they were using this hubbub uh, and they were using the international community putting pressure on Israel as a cover as w- during these these activities which they've been doing for years um, but they did it the last few days they were actually planting IEDs to blow up the security barrier um, there was there has been a very uh, constant pattern um, or a script, That has been going on since Israel evacuated in two thousand six. Israel has the most culpability because they're the ones who consistently succumb to international pressure. Um, But the international community also does need to look at itself in the mirror and says, you know what? Maybe let's not pressure Israel on a ceasefire. Let's not pressure Israel uh, to stop in any way. Israel needs to go ahead and get rid of this evil that is adjacent to it, and then Israel's going to need to understand that we no longer have the, when when our enemies, when it's Iran and all their proxies are saying they want to destroy Israel, we need to take them seriously. And we can't just be thinking that they don't have any ability to do so. It's just a dream for them. They'll never be able to do it. We're so smart. One of the things we preach at IDSF, at Israel Defense Security Forum, is that regardless of the technology, regardless of the weapons, and even regardless of the great um, commanders and officers that we have, If you have that, but you don't have it, it's not built on a foundation of ideology in Israel, they call it Zionism and Judaism, then all of the money in warfare is meaningless. You could see that to a certain extent in Ukraine, where they're overpowered, overmanned, but they believe in themselves and they're fighting back. Um, For Israel, Israel... we understand that our enemies have a strong ideology. They don't have the same technology as we do. They don't have the same money as we do, but they certainly have a commitment. Um, they are certainly very focused, and they're willing to die, and they're willing to make others die, in order to achieve their goals. And we have much. More, we are um, a culture that embodies life. Um, we respect life. We revere life. Um, our, our enemies see that as a huge weakness of ours. And I guess in this a bizarre and uh, and corrupt uh, world view. It is a weakness because we care for life. Um, but the reality is we thought that we had um, all of the technology and all of the funding to be able to keep ourselves uh, safe and uh, without understanding that there always is, that always is the vulnerability. And we always need to be at, on our edge and until we uh, can really achieve peace, um, then we are not safe. And I think that's a hard lesson that we've now learned. There will be some specific things that our intelligence community is going to be learning. And I'll say just one last thing. Um, In 2005, when we left, we also, our intelligence became reliant completely uh, remotely. So we were were no longer at boots on the ground. In other parts of Israel, in Judea and Samaria, where Israeli uh, communities have, Israel has not annexed those areas, uh, Judea and Samaria, uh, Palestinians live, Israelis live, we have Israeli soldiers, there is an ability to have uh, connections and have actual real-time intelligence. We are not relying on drones and then tapping people's phones and stuff like that. Um, in Gaza, we were completely reliant on that. And at a certain point, our became very blatantly obvious to our enemies. They, they would know what communications are being intercepted. Well, communications are not being intercepted so it became very clear it was so clear that they were literally able to drive um you know thousands of people on mopeds right into our right into our backyards um and it's uh it's, there's a tremendous amount of humility that the Israeli intelligence and the Israeli military need to take um, right now is not the time for it right now we have to continue to fight when the war is over and we're able to do a real uh uh overview and hopefully we'll do it properly. Um, and make the necessary changes, I think mostly in mentality and understanding that we have real threats and that we're not safe.
0: Um, So moving on to Israel's response uh, to the attack and specifically the striking number of civilian casualties for which Israel is criticized for many channels and forums. In your opinion, is there a way to minimize civilian casualties in Gaza? And does the IDF attempt to minimize those casualties?
1: So the IDF does everything it can to minimize casualties, um, but this is exactly the playbook of Hamas, and it's absolutely important. It's critical for the international community not to be part of it. Um, you know, Israel is right now uh, has overcome, has taken over a hospital that was there called the Al Shifa Hospital, which was the headquarters of uh, of Hamas. Everything we see that we can tell that hostages were kept there. Um, just early a few hours ago, Israel arrested the head of the hospital um, because they were working together with Hamas. Um, sure we'll have a lot more coming out. We have many, many um, Hamas uh, fighters who have and have have told us since we've uh, captured them, uh, made it very clear. We have the evidence. We are now going into these tunnels. We can see what was built over there. Um, they completely. Um, have built their entire society, as has Hezbollah up north in Lebanon, um, intertwined themselves into their civilian population. And I'll say in all those cases in in Lebanon, there is a UN agency that was set up with the sole purpose of preventing Hezbollah from doing exactly that. Um, The UN operates in Gaza as well. And in both cases, uh, the UN refused to do anything, refused to call out well, what was happening is the embeddingment of military infrastructure into civilians. I would actually, I would almost say, they built a military infrastructure and then literally put people on top of it. Um, so, you know, the IDF has pioneered many, many um, uh, avenues. We have one, one project, one, one uh, um, activity uh, that we call door knocking. Where Israel literally created a, a weapon where it would send a, um, a projectile right next to a house; it would explode. Almost like a big firecracker, it wouldn't hit the house, but it would warn everybody in that in that building to vacate because it is about to be destroyed. Before we get to the door knocking, Israel sends millions of texts, is sending, you know millions of leaflets, letting people know to move south. Um, the real problem is that uh, in every other conflict in the world, when there is a battlefield, um, naturally, refugees, Flee out of the battlefield. Um, we saw that certainly in Ukraine, where over I think about 12 million Ukrainians fled uh, Ukraine. We saw that certainly in the Syrian civil war, um, and you see that in conflicts all over the world. When there's a battlefield, people flee. Um, here, there is a, there is a border between between the Gaza Strip and Egypt, and Egypt has kept that border perfectly sealed, which is kind of ironic. Because the reason why we're in this situation in the first place is because the border between Egypt and Gaza was so wide open for certain things, things like cement and weapons, and that's how Hamas was able to arm itself. So Hamas let all of the weapons in, let all of the bad guys in, let all of the cement in to build all these tunnels, yet all of a sudden now they've managed to be very, very clear and very, very capable. Of sealing the border and preventing any refugees from leaving. Um, the whole Gaza Strip is just about 40 kilometers north to south, barely 10 kilometers east to west. It's not a big space. Very easy for people to leave the Gaza Strip, um, move into the Sinai. The Sinai desert and the Sinai area adjacent to um, Gaza is completely vacant. Um, no reason why these people couldn't, um, the, the civilians couldn't be there um, until hostilities are over until Israel is able to wipe out Hamas. Um, but there's two reasons why that doesn't happen. Number one, Hamas needs the civilian casualties. They need the human shields. Unfortunately, Egypt is playing along with them, is supporting them uh, on this. Um, and number two is Hamas actively is, was actually shooting at their own civilians who are trying to flee. So that Israel literally was protecting Gaza's Gazan civilians wanted to flee south where the where Israel was attacking um, from Hamas who were attacking their own civilians from leaving. Um, the most ridiculous thing. I mean, even the fact that Israel is saying we're only going to attack in the northern part of the Gaza Strip and not in the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Typically, you don't telegraph to your enemies where you're going to be fighting. We're saying this is the battle. This is the battlefield so that all of the Gazans could flee to the southern part of the Gaza Strip and be relatively safe. Um, Eventually, the areas where the the battlefield is going to shift to the southern part of uh, Gaza, um, and uh, unless there is an opportunity for the Gazans to flee south into uh, the Sinai, into Egypt, or elsewhere, um, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a a terrible situation, because the area where they are right now, for the most part, um, is an area that was called Gush Katif, uh, it's the southern part of uh, Gaza, um, right adjacent to the border with Egypt, and it's a place where Israelis had lived there until 2005. Israel vacated, as I mentioned earlier, and in the ensuing 18 years, the Gaza, Gazans almost effectively did not build in that area that Israel had pioneered and made, made into really a, a garden of Eden. It was really a wonderful place right on the beach. There was nothing there. However, underneath that area is not just a tremendous amount of infrastructure of tunnels, uh, of attack tunnels that the Hamas has militarized, but there is huge, huge weapon depot. You may remember about two years ago, there was an explosion in Beirut of uh, chemicals that were being used for military purposes that Hama- uh, Hezbollah was storing over there and exploded. That is essentially what we're facing um, in Gaza, the area where most of the uh, Gaza civilians are now going to be moving towards, underneath them is this powder keg. Um, the likelihood of it expl- exploding, and I would say the likelihood of Hamas intentionally blowing it up. They don't even have to blame Israel. The entire international community will blame Israel if tens of thousands of people tragically will be killed. From Hamas perspective, this is an opportunity to martyr and to to, to push the cause. And this will make the international community stop Israel because Israel will have killed so many people. Um, It is a powder keg waiting to explode. And unless there is significant pressure on Egypt to open the border and to let the Gazans, the refugees, let them out of the battlefield into a safe, organized manner. um, There's no reason, if it's done in an organized manner, it could be very beneficial from a humanitarian perspective, and it could, would prevent um, these Gazan refugees from spreading all over the world. If it isn't done in an organized manner, eventually the Gazans are going to storm the border because that's their only option. Um, and when that happens, they will diffuse all over the world. Um, they pro- prim- primarily go to Europe where many um, Muslims have traveled in the past because it's very attractive for them and relatively easy to get to. Um, so again, the, the smartest thing from a humanitarian perspective is to ensure that the Gazan refugees are able to effectively go into Gaza, um, go and leave Gaza, go into the Sinai Peninsula, um, and hopefully in a way that they'd be able to be cared for and uh, taken and treated as refugees until Israel's is able to eliminate Hamas and make uh, Gaza a safe place for Israelis and then potentially also for some of these Palestinians who don't want to come back.
0: Thank you so much, Mr. Pierce, for being here with us and answering all our questions. Stay tuned for the continuation of our discussion. Thank you.
1: Thank you.